I'm Alan. I'm an alcoholic. Alan. Hi. Yeah, LA. I mean, Beverly Hills is, sounds even more impressive from the podium. Um, uh, thank you for having me tonight. It's good to be here. Um, uh, the vibe here is kind of young people. Um, you, you know, that like reading at the beginning. And um, I, I, I feel like I'm discouraging. I, I, I want to tell you, I started off as a young person. And Alcoholics Anonymous, but that was 33 years ago, and uh, it went away. Um, so if you want what I have and are willing to go to any length to get it. Um, but uh, I, I, uh, I'm grateful to be here. I'm grateful to be sober. I really appreciated Ted's 10-minute talk. Uh, when I was Ted's amount of time in sobriety, uh, I, I just moved out here. I got sober in New York. And... Um, I remember like the first time or two that I was invited to be a 10 minute speaker and I thought it was you know, such an honor and, and frankly, if I'm going to acknowledge my ego, such an acknowledgement of, of the great gifts that I had to offer and, um, and then I discovered really that if you're not from California, we have diamond lanes and you need multiple occupants to, to get into the diamond lane. And the old timer would usually tell you halfway down to wherever it was here, or like La Jolla or whatever, that you were just really there to get them into the diamond lane. So what I want to tell you, Ted, I drive an electric car. Um, it's not nothing fancy, it's a Chevy, but it's electric. I don't need you for the diamond lane. So my invitation was sincere. I wanted to hear you had to say, and you did great. I know, um, didn't see that coming. Um, I. Uh, I'm, I'm really grateful to be sober. I'm really grateful there's so many new people. Um, uh, I, there were a lot of new people, a lot of 30-day chips. I'm, I, 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 this is a crowd that I suspect had an odd holiday season, and um, I'm really glad you're here. And I want to tell you, if you took a chip for 30 days, as a number of you did, um, you are an old-timer as far as all the people who are arriving uh, for their New Year's resolutions. And if you aren't familiar with AA yet, I know it's the 14th of January, I can assure you that many of our New Year's resolution people are still in the process of arriving. They, like, it took a while for that to sink in. And, um, and uh, what we do here is um, we share our experience, strength and hope. And that's what I'm gonna try and do for the time that I have. But you know, if you know how to get to a meeting, if you know how to like do a commitment and you can show it to somebody else, you have something to offer. And if you've been going through a stretch of feeling really useless in your life, um, it's nice. It's nice to have something to start giving back. So I'm really glad there are a lot of new people here tonight. I, um, I, uh, I got here, so let's see, I, I was uh, born. Uh, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, uh, which um, I've always wanted to be cool. I always feel intimidated if I'm being candid which I will be when I speak in like in this sort of Laguna Beach, Laguna Indy Gallery. I just feel like you all have like a beach hipness that I always aspire to and never could quite hit the mark. Um, I, I just always wanted to be cooler than I was. I'm kind of, I'm kind of a nerdy, nervous kid. When I was little, I had, a, a, I, I learned to speak in Brooklyn. So I had this Brooklyn accent. I had a big, I had big bushy red hair. Uh, we called it an Israel back then. Um, and, um, and I like pick and all that. I wore husky clothing because I was kind of a chunkster and um, I just wasn't cool. And so being born in Brooklyn turns out to be about 
my peak of being like hip. It was all sort of downhill <laughs> after that. And uh, I was nervous and um, nerdy. Uh, I, uh, I was good with numbers and would like sort of like, I just didn't know how to deal with people and I didn't want to deal with people. And um, when I finally got to drink, it, it relieved the discomfort that I felt all the time just trying to function. I, um, I know that there are many people who wind up here who are good sort of on the outside of functioning. I think that most of us can relate to that feeling of, of just feeling awkward in social situations, but I wasn't even the kind of person who looked like they were functioning well. I just was sort of awkward. And, um, and I started drinking, I'm Jewish, and uh, I started drinking at Friday night services. We would go, uh, we, we'd moved to the Midwest when I was 10, and, uh, and it was not good for me because everyone was sort of like tall and, and slender and athletic, and I, was pudgy and awkward and and looked different and sounded different and you know in the midwest growing up in the 70s you didn't want to be different i i feel i have three kids now i've got a my youngest are twins and they turned 18 so i don't know if they're technically kids anymore but i've spent the last 20 years being like a parent of young people and it seems like it's cooler now to not fit in to be different to be your own person that was not the vibe we got at all growing up. It, not at all. Like you wanted to be normal, fit in. There was sort of a safety in that. And I was different. And, um, and we would go to these Friday night services. And at the end of temple services, if you've never been to one, uh, before you go down to the social hall for punch and cookies and polite conversation, you, you say a prayer over the wine and you have like this, you break bread, you have challah, which is this bread. And uh, I think now it's usually grape juice, but back then it was Manischewitz, which I'm not recommending if you're here, but I will tell you that Manischewitz was a very, and probably still is a very, very sweet uh, wine, kind of designed for the sophisticated palate of your average 10 year old. And um, <laughs> the moms, would wildly overpour. If there were if there were 70 people at the services, they would put out 150 of what were really shot glasses of Manischewitz. And so we would go to services and then we would um, do the prayers and then all the adults and the younger kids would go down to the social hall. And my friends and I would stay behind and do shot contests with Manischewitz. <laughs> and, um, and I liked the effect. And uh, I liked the effect and I learned something for me that felt very valuable. I basically learned that if I don't offend you, you don't make me stop. Like basically when you've drunk 20 shots of, of alcoholic grape juice, you smell of it. Like there's no subtlety and nuance and you're drunk. Um, there's no hiding it, but basically as long as I didn't uh, throw up on the rabbi's wife's shoes or insult the board president, nobody cared. And I learned that, and that was a big part of my drinking. I know uh, uh, from having been around AA for a while that many of you have these stories that wind up with like jails and institutions. They're great stories. I love those stories. Like the, the more the more violent, the more crazy, the more like you know coming to in a, in a different time zone with like your hands on like the wire, like pull the blue wire. Um, you know, like I live for that, but I'm the opposite. I just want to be left alone because I'm a remarkably uncomfortable person in my own skin. And I have learned 
that I can medicate my discomfort, not enough to change my life overall, but to make the day manageable. And that's what I want to do. I want to, I want to medicate my discomfort in the way that I know how, and I don't want you to stop me. I, um, I, uh, I go to high school. I go, you know, I do reasonably well. I always, only in AA do we feel that acknowledging that we did reasonably well in school is going to turn off the crowd. Like, <laughs> sorry, I didn't fail. Out. Um, and uh, I went off to college. I, I picked my school for the uh, commendable reason. We're in the 80s now. And there's this thing called the preppy handbook. I, I mean, I don't know if anyone of you, if I'm looking around, you would have seen it like on in like your mom's bookshelf, whatever. It's like an old joke. It was this whole thing about being preppy, which was a thing back then. And I didn't know that it was a joke. I took it as sort of like a Bible for how to be cooler than I was. And I picked a top 10 drinking school in the preppy handbook. There were a lot of lists of things to do. And I went off to North Carolina uh, to a school down there. and. Um, I, I, uh, I fell madly in love with beer. Um, I, I, um, I'm going to say this right now. I, I've been here a long time, and and occasionally people act like it's controversial to do drugs and Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, I'm just going to tell you that um, if I had known that it would be so easy to offend some old timers by talking about drugs in AA. I would have made a point of doing a lot more drugs. I, I just didn't know. And um, I drank because it was what was sort of in front of me and available. I did, I wound up in New York after college and I did uh, enhance my drinking by smoking a little bit of recreational crack. But um, it was the late eighties and kind of everyone was doing that. So um, I joined a fraternity. I fell madly in love with beer. Uh, Budweiser was my beer of choice. Uh, it's the king of beers, and um, and I sort of um, I discovered a sort of secondary addiction, if you will. I love adrenaline. I am really uncomfortable in my own skin, and there is nothing quite as exciting as sort of coming to on a Thursday morning after Wednesday night keg parties and realizing that I have a final at three o'clock in the afternoon, that I've got a term paper due at by five and, and the adrenaline surges and I'm just out of self. And I, I, I'm, I'm sort of still capable of those wild feats of, of overachievement that some of us were able to do. And um, I just don't wanna, I don't wanna be in my own skin. I don't wanna think anything. I, uh, I get to my senior year of college and I, uh, I get invited by the state of Illinois, which is where we live, to go back to interview for a scholarship. Um, and so I go back uh, to interview and I don't get the scholarship. Uh, but in the meantime, I've missed all of the job signups for seniors. I, I, this is before the internet and before all this stuff is sort of online and automated. There literally are just like sheets that you have to be there to sign up and I'm not paying attention. And I. I don't get the scholarship and I sort of miss all the signups and I have taken uh, the board exams to apply to law school or business school, uh, but I neglect to apply. I, I, it's just too much work and too much organization and it sort of escapes me. Uh, fun fact, if any of you aspire to higher degrees, I can tell you from experience that if you do not apply to any schools, you will not get into any schools. That's what I learned. 
and it gets to be about March. And um, I realized I'm about to graduate from this college in North Carolina. And it's been a good run for four years. And that if I don't come up with a better plan, I'm going back to mom and dad's house and going to be uh, selling sheets and towels again at Marshall Fields, which had been my summer job. And um, selling sheets and towels, if any of you do it, you have my sympathy. It's a terrible, terrible job. And I will tell you why. Um, if a guy like me with very little style is put in men's clothing at, at the department store, nobody, just people come in and they pick out what they want and they buy it. They, they, they just, I ring it up and it's fine. Sheets and towels is where people want to talk to you about like their decorations for their bathroom or their kitchen. They want you to care about their colors. Every towel, by the way, towels aren't named things like green or brown. They have all these weird names, fern and tawny. And like, it, it requires me to listen to you and be interested in your decorating. And I can assure you, I have no interest in any of that. It's absolute torture. I am not an aspiring Al-Anon. I don't care about you at all. And, um, and, and I can't imagine having to go back to that. So in a burst of, of adrenaline-driven alcoholic inspiration, I find one job interview that's open in New York. And um, I presume somebody had maybe gotten a job and so they took, you know, so they crossed themselves off the list. I, I, I'm able to sweet talk the person who's in charge into letting me have the interview spot. It's for an investment bank. I don't know anything about investment banking, uh, but I do because I I'm really nerdy. I do happen to know who the editor is of the New York Times crossword puzzle. To this day, I remember Eugene Maleska, fun fact, if, if you need it, <laughs> uh, edited the New York Times crossword puzzle. And for some reason, that impresses my interviewer enough that they fly me up to New York for a second interview. And I go to New York and it's April and I'm graduating in May. And, um, and we have this thing that I've never even heard of for lunch called sushi. It's like wild and exotic, raw fish and um, New York. And they're uh, suddenly willing to pay me what seems like a lot of money to live in a big glamorous city. And I think, yes, of course, they have, they've seen what I have to offer. And I, uh, I accept the job. I avoid going back to selling sheets and towels. I get my little Brooks Brothers suits together. I move out into a studio apartment in New York. And I very quickly settle into what is my real job, which is exploring all the dive bars of downtown New York. I am a total dive bar drunk. I am, I'm, I guess you call it a reverse snob. If you like drinks, <laughs> my attitude is all drinks should be consumed in dark city places and they should either be clear or some shade of brown. If you are somebody who drinks in pretty places with drinks that are like pastel colors, I. I don't care as much now, but when I was new, I literally am like, why are you here? Like, like you're, like, I didn't get it. And uh, I love the dive bars of New York and I go to all of them. I, and there are fantastic, or there were fantastic dive bars in New York. There are like the Ukrainian bars and the Lithuanian bars. There's this bar at 7 and B called Bazax and they film part of Crocodile Dundee there. There's, um, a gas station that was converted into a bar at Second and B. You can go uptown to like some of the Upper East Side bars that are a little bit sort of a different energy. And uh, I just love going from bar to bar to bar. And literally, when I say that, based on time, 
because I'm a beer drinker and I, and I can just go for a very long time. But um, what I find about alcoholism and about the progressive nature of our disease is that almost imperceptibly, slowly, but over time, kind of clearly, I get more and more tired. And things that I have a lot of energy for, I find as time goes on, I don't have the energy for. And so in the beginning, this is all some big adventure of exploring everything and going everywhere. But I start finding my world contracting because it's just a little bit too much. What if I don't know where to stand? What if I don't know how to get the bartender's attention? What if I need to get sick and I don't know where the bathroom is? It's just, it's just all a bit much. And so for the last two years of my drinking, um, I, I have quit that job, that job that was happy to pay me just to show up. Uh, I don't know. I, I had some moment of, I don't know, stupidity. And uh, so I'm a part-time cater waiter and I'm, uh, I'm drinking in a bar called The Village Idiot every night. Um, it's just uh, 11th and 1st. It's long and dark and narrow. There are junkies shooting up in the bathroom. There are parolees uh, violating with concealed weapons. And there's a jukebox with a lot of sad music because I love sad music when I'm drinking. There's um, a lot of Patsy Cline. I don't know why there was a lot of country western in New York, but there was a lot of Patsy Cline. There was that band of gold song about the woman whose husband leaves her on their wedding night. And then there was my all-time favorite song, Brandy, You're a Fine Girl, What a Good Wife You'd Be. And uh, Fat Tommy's the bartender. And as long as you tip him occasionally, he doesn't really care uh, what you do. And uh, I just sort of move in there. You could have sent my mail there. And um, I, uh, I, uh, I, I had quit the job. I don't have a lot of money. So I do, um, I I'm always running out of money. I, I, um, I live 30 blocks from the idiot. Uh, they're the short blocks. I want to be, I don't want to over dramatize it, but it's a long walk home and at night, for some reason in New York, it feels like it's at like one, two, three in the morning. It's always raining. And um, almost every night I put a bus token into my pocket when I'm going out because I know that all of my money will be spent, but I kind of hope that it, like I'll hold on to the bus token. And I almost always manage to find some way to trade the bus token away before the end of the night and I'm walking home. And um, uh, I uh, therefore need to hustle drinks. And uh, if you, if you've been here for a little bit, you're going to learn about the steps. Ted talked about that excellently. Uh, the fourth step, we ask that we write an inventory, that we disclose uh, our fears and our resentments. And it compares it in the big book to this, um, to sort of a shopkeeping, to like taking inventory and stock of what you have. And sometimes people are sort of surprised at the concept I find. And I think, did you never hustle a drink? Because in my experience, anyone who's hustled drinks has done an inventory of what they can sell and what they can't sell. And I know that I am, there is a market for people who are really attractive just to hustle drinks because people like to drink around really attractive people. I'm not capable of thinking about your problems enough to really think through why they want to be around you when you're attractive and they're drinking. I don't really worry about that. I just resent you because I'm not attractive enough to just get a drink for sitting there. I have to do two very challenging things. One is I have to tell you stories that are so sad and moving that you want to buy me a drink. Um, and I don't really have enough childhood trauma, so I just make stuff up um, and, and, and I sell it pretty well. Uh, and the other thing, which is even more demoralizing than that, 
if you've never been in a dive bar, there's always somebody who wants to be heard. They got some story they want to tell. And if you are willing to listen to it, they will buy you a drink. And I don't care. Like, I do not want to listen to you. I don't care about whatever it is, but I'll do it in order to get a drink. And um, the point of this story is this. I spent the final two years of my drinking in a dive bar every night doing two things, talking to you and listening to you. And when we talk about alcoholism being cunning and baffling and powerful, um, I know this is true for the following reason. It didn't occur to me until I was years sober um, what was going on. I literally had created a story in my head for all those nights that I was in the idiot that, um, that I, because I had gone to this decent school and kind of graduated with honors and I thought I was special. And I created this story in my head that I was doing an undercover cultural anthropology degree at the idiot, that I was like the Margaret Mead of downtown dive bars. And I believed it. I, I knew that the people sitting along this long dark bar were barflies. It was really obvious. I'm telling you, I didn't realize until I was a few years sober that I was a bar fly. It is amazing to me. And I know there are many new people here. And I just want to say, not, not to shame you, but hopefully to inspire you. I didn't understand a lot about the nature of my alcoholism just by getting drunk every night for a long time. I had to get sober and work the steps and start helping other people before it kind of shifted into making sense for me. Um, One night, something weird happened, um, and it was this. I, uh, I was drinking. I was drinking at a club that night called The Saint, uh, and uh, there was something going on. There was a white party going on. Everyone was wearing white and looked really angelic, to be honest. And, uh, and I'm drunk, which is really normal. It's just kind of what I do. And I had this moment of clarity. Um, it, it wasn't a moment of clarity. It was a, it was a moment of of isolation in, in our book. So AA was founded by these two guys, Bill Wilson, who got sober first, and then Bob Smith, Dr. Bob, who, uh, who got sober a few months later. And, and we sort of marked the beginning of AA for when there was a fellowship, when there were two people. And uh, Bill, whose story is in the big book, it's called Bill's Story, talks about having this white light experience. He talks about um, having this moment. He's in a sanitarium where he's been many times and people are trying to help him, which has happened before, but something shifts. And he has this moment where the light seemed to get very bright. And he has this sense of, of, of the nearness of God. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. If you've never read it in the big book, um, but he has this moment and it's transformative. It's sort of the light comes in and it sort of shifts his sobriety. And because his getting sober eventually leads to all of us having this opportunity. It's really this amazing moment. In this club in, in the winter of 1990 called The Saint, I had literally the opposite. I'm, I'm drunk, nothing unusual. I'm morose, nothing unusual. Uh, and I'm watching these people walk around and suddenly I have this moment where it seems to me that the, this dark room gets even darker. And, uh, and suddenly in this moment, I see a separation of myself from all these other people that I've never seen before. I, I, I somehow or other get a sense of the separation that I have from everyone and everything. And I see people walking around, even holding hands. And um, I know somehow 
in my mind, that even though they're holding hands and that they probably think they're connecting, it's as if I can see that there are still atoms and molecules that are between their hands, that they're not really connecting. And here's what, here's what I got out of that. I am, I've been a lonely, isolated person for a long time. If you love me and are concerned about me, I've pushed you away because I don't know how to explain to you why my life is circling the drain. I, I don't understand why I do what I do. I don't understand why I'm always so unhappy. And I know that I need to medicate and I just, I cannot handle loving, kind people. And I'm a fortunate man. I have family and friends who are loving and I just push them away because it's too painful that I can't explain to them why I'm living the way that I'm living and why I don't want it to change. And suddenly in this dark moment, I get it, that I'm completely alone, that I've been alone for a long time and I'm gonna be alone for the rest of my life. And um, it is a very sad moment, but it's just kind of like the curtain has fallen down and I see things for what they are. And the weirdest part of that is it ruins my drinking. I've been drunk for a decade and it's been very effective. And all of a sudden I can't drink effectively anymore. And it is literally like being betrayed by a lover that I just never thought would leave me. It's a crappy relationship. It has not worked in a long time, but if anyone has ever been in this relationship, it's awful, but it's reliable. And, and suddenly it's not even a reliable relationship. And I don't know what to do. I will tell you, I don't certainly don't know how to express it to other people. I don't want to talk about it. I'm not, I, I, I'm, my dad was an army uh, intelligence officer. I, I'm not big on sharing secrets. I grew up in a house where information was kind of power and you kept it to yourself. I, this thing that is very modern and wonderful that people are very confessional and believe, we tend to have the space nowadays that if I'm honest, good things will come of it. I don't have that in 1990. I think if I tell you the truth, you're gonna use it against me. So I don't know what to do and I've got to figure it out. I try, um, a brief experiment in control drinking, having only two drinks a night. It's miserable. It's, uh, it, it's just enough to like, to whet my appetite but not to get me anywhere. And after about two weeks of that, I overshoot the mark um, and, uh, and it doesn't work. So I, I don't know what to do. And it's the end of February in 1990 and uh, Mardi Gras has arrived and um, New York has a huge Catholic community. And I grew up in Chicago, which also has a huge Catholic community. And so I do what seems like the best I can think of, which is I decide that I'm gonna give up drinking and any form of self-medication for Lent. And I'm Jewish, uh, so we're not, we're not known for our Lenten practice, but by making it sort of a joke, uh, I, I, I get sober without people asking really hard questions like, why are you not drinking? Like, you know, because I've made it a joke. And I white knuckle it through 40 days and 40 very long nights of Lent. And um, on Easter Sunday, I, um, I, I, what happens when I stop drinking is I get sort of manic. And uh, I, I just am crazy and bouncing off walls. I'm hyper and filled with energy. And I, uh, I, um, I wind up in a club called The Sound Factory. In 1990, in April of 1990, the Sound Factory was the hippest club on the planet. It, I, I'm not, I'm way, way out of the demo of cool club kids now, but back then I had a little bit of game, I guess. And if you're not a club person, I'm not encouraging you to do it, but there's always sort of like a club somewhere in the world that's the coolest club. And that, it, that was it. And, um, and again, I'm, I'm a nerdy, uncomfortable person who thinks 
that if I'm with cooler people, I'm going to be safer. And so I'm out dancing, doing my little crazy uh, dance at uh, 2 30 in the morning. And I run into somebody who's two and a half years sober and Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, and it changes my life. And, you know, it's sort of wild because um, we don't know. If you stick around here, we don't actually know when we're going to impact each other's lives. And, and one of the amazing things about recovery is that all of us, in my opinion, have an ability to help somebody else like figure out that they need to get sober and maybe how to do it. And I, I just start talking to this person. And, and I think what it is, in the 12 and 12, which is another piece of Alcoholics Anonymous literature, in the third step, it describes, the third step is this idea. The second step is this idea that we come to believe in something bigger than ourselves. A lot of people call it God. You don't have to. It's just, you don't have to. Um, we just need to believe in something bigger than ourselves because most of us have been running our lives on self-will and it hasn't really worked that well. And the third step is where I make a decision to turn my life over to something bigger than myself, which is scary. If you're new and, and you, however badly it's been going, you've been running on self-reliance, it, it, in my opinion, it's scary and brave to trust something bigger. And in the third step in the 12 and 12, it describes the approach to faith as being like walking up to a door that is locked and has an invisible keyhole. And then it says that if we have the littlest amount of faith, it's as if that keyhole magically appears and the door opens. And I think that I've never been to an AA meeting, but I'm a huge believer in the value of contempt prior to investigation because I'm very busy and it saves time to dismiss stuff without even bothering to check it out. So I've already rejected AA for whatever reason. Mostly I think I'm you know, too young or something. And um, and I'm at the sound factory and this person who's like having a good time is sober. And I, I guess I needed a reason to question my own rejection of AA before I'd ever checked it out. I thought maybe there's something that I could check out. Like maybe if, if this person who seems to function well at like a cool club is sober, maybe I could fit in. I don't know, but I go to a meeting. I go to a meeting called High Noon the next day. And um, I, uh, I, I, I'm crazed, I'm manic, I, I don't remember anything the speaker said, but I run into somebody there who knew me from out and about, they take me out for a bite to eat. I have a little bit of identification when they talk about their alcoholism. And then I, um, I go to an Easter supper and I have half a glass of white wine and half a glass of red wine because I had committed to being sober for Lent and Lent is over. And I sort of trigger that, that, um, that thirst, that hunger. And I know what I need to do. I'm, I'm in Westchester County outside of Manhattan at my friend's parents' house. I need to get with my friends back to the train station. I need to take the train back into New York. I need to lose my friends. I need to get out of my nice Easter clothing into my grubby downtown clothing. I need to find whatever money I can scrape together and just get downtown and get drunk and stay drunk for as long as I can. It's not complicated. Just a little bit of wine after 40 days and set it off. What I remember is I feel so tired. It's not that I have any kind of a program but I did have physical sobriety and now I don't. And I know what I have to do and I'm so tired. And the miracle is I do make it back into Manhattan. I lose my friends, I go back home and I collapse. Um, and I turn myself back into y'all the next day. I, I, that's April 16th of 1990. That's my sobriety date. I start going to meetings. 
I'm not a vision for you. I'm angry. I'm resentful. I'm confused. I'm sort of manic. I have this bike that I got three days before I got sober. And it's not like a cool vroom, vroom Harley bike. It's like dun, 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 dun. like this <laughs> delivery boy bike that I'm pedaling around the island of Manhattan. They call me the boy on the bike. We did call Ted one tooth. Ted, we're not really <laughs> clever with nicknames in AA, but um, I was the boy on the bike and I have bike accidents. My first five weeks, I have six bike accidents. Um, I, I get hit by a door, I get hit by a van, I go into a pothole. At least one time, I swear to God, I just sort of spontaneously fly over my own handlebars. Uh, I don't have a helmet because nothing about my talk will have given this away to you now. But in my mind, I think that I'm badass. I think I'm straight up G and like, I think helmets are for wusses. And um, what I love to do is argue with people in my head while I'm riding my bike. I find that arguing with you in person is hard because I can't always like win the argument and you could throw a punch or something. What I like about arguing with you in my head while I'm on my bike is I still will regularly lose the argument but I can back up to where I start to lose and recraft my approach. So I bike around, I argue with imaginary people and I get hit by things. And, um, and I don't care because I am, um, there's another part in our big book and I don't remember exactly where it is. So you'll have to read the whole dang thing and find it. But it says that the dilemma of the alcoholic who's arrived in AA is choosing between certain physical death and life on spiritual terms. And I love it. A, because I relate to it, and B, because for some reason, I like to mess with Al-Anons, and I just think this must confuse them so much, this idea that this person who they love and worry about and pray for, when faced with the choice between letting a loving God into, or loving higher power, if you will, into their life, or dying, cannot figure out which is the better choice. Like, like can I get back to you on that on Wednesday? And, um, and that, that's where I was. I'm physically sober. I'm going to your meetings, I'm eating your cookies, I'm drinking your coffee, I don't know. I, I just want out, I just want out of the pain and discomfort. And the miracle is at about 45 days of sobriety after all these accidents, I'm pedaling madly to a meeting and um, dashing in and out of traffic, like, like, like cars, trucks, like, and I'm, me on a bike and, um, I suddenly have this moment of uncertainty that I'm actually, it is not that I am filled with some sense of overwhelming gratitude for the life that A is gonna give me a vision of my children and my home. And like, it's not nothing that major. It's like I've gone from 50-50 to 51-49 in favor of living. And I buy a helmet that day and I immediately stop having accidents. To this day, our 11 steps suggest that we expand our spiritual life through prayer and meditation. And I, as most of us are, I'm a big proponent of it. I do my best. I'm, I'm actually, after 33 years, I'm decent at meditation, which feels like about as good as one could hope to get. Um, but I try to tie action to my prayer because I just find that I get responses quicker. And to me, getting... It was one thing to think that maybe I care about living and it was another thing to get a helmet and to start wearing it. Um, I do my steps with this uh, woman, Karen, because I'm staying sober and, uh, and getting crazier, which by the way, is what happens, it turns out, to people who suffer from alcoholism if we don't work the steps. Physical sobriety is not physical. Alcohol medicates my alcoholism. It has a lot of prices, but it medicates my alcoholism. Physical sobriety, just leaves me really crazy and uncomfortable if I don't have a program. 
and I don't have a program. And, and Karen is the vixen on a soap opera. And, um, and she hears me sharing and, uh, Karen is from California. She's five years sober. I think you all are really spiritual. I think you're kind of weird too, but I'm living in New York and I think Californians are very, like they get spirituality. They're Californians. They drink herbal tea. And, um, <laughs> and she also has um, hands down the best rack in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I'm gay, but there's power there. And um, just is. By the way, there are a lot of you guys here. I'm just going to say this right now. If, if you're, and women, you can hear this too, of course, but if you're now uncomfortable because you've been identifying with me, I just need to tell you, you're not gay because you identify <laughs> with me. You may be alcoholic, um, unless you're gay. I don't know. Um, uh, but she kind of calls me on the phone. And she explains to me how to write an inventory. And I literally think, this is awesome. I'm, this is like some AA celebrity outreach program. I'm going to get a secret like celebrity friend. So I write my inventory. It is still to this day the dumbest reason I've ever heard anyone write an inventory. But I do it with the four columns of resentment and the five columns of sex and the list of fears that are unconnected. I just do the dang thing. If you're new and, and if you're being pressured by your sponsor or your recovery, whatever, to do things. I want to tell you what I've learned for 33 years. The action does not care why I take it. If I take a good action, I get a good result. If I take a bad action, no matter how much I believe, no matter how much I rationalize it, bad action, bad result, good action, good result. By the way, I would love to tell you like 80 or 90%. It's pretty much 100% of the time. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of pain from beyond, behind people with my amount of time telling you, just take the good action. Just take it. it. Like, don't think that you're gonna figure out some way around it because very few of us ever do. And I wrote the inventory and my life started to change. Um, I moved to California when I was three and a half years sober. I sort of, um, I wandered away a little bit from AA for a period of time. I, uh, I I had been trained very well by those people in New York to do basic AA, and now I was ready for what I would call advanced placement AA. Like I wanted something a little bit more like spiritual and abstract, and I, uh, I just, I didn't, and it's California. You all clap all the time, and like you mention these people, and I don't know who they are, and it just feels like I should be given a cheat sheet and whatever, and I pull away, and here's what I can tell you. I am... Um, I made a series of choices to sort of move myself out of the center of our lifeboat to the edge, and it was bad. I, 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 and I'm very fortunate that I didn't get loaded. And when I was um, about eight years sober, actually it was, 20, it was 25 years ago this month, I went to the Pacific Group, um, which I, I feel like I feel like people in Orange County, even with like three days, have heard of it. I feel like like there's such a cheat sheet that they do give you in, in the IOP about like the Pacific Group. Um, it's just a it's just a big active group, and uh, I, it was founded by a man named Clancy, and Clancy became my sponsor for 21 years. And um, Clancy, uh, when I got him, I had nine years of sobriety, and um, and he asked me to go to the yard. Uh, which is this place where we play volleyball and softball. It doesn't go, he, Clancy passed away in 2020. It doesn't happen as much, but it was every week. And look, there are many like 
gay men and certainly even more lesbians who are good softball players. I'm just not one of them. And um, I'm terrible. And I was really afraid. And uh, because I, I hate looking bad. I don't know if anyone else can relate to this. I don't want to look bad in front of people. And when I say that I was bad, it was a year before I got a hit. Like, that's a long year. And I would yeah. watch newcomers rolling out of like detox trucks and they would hit triples and I wish pain on them. And um, I would just keep showing up and I was miserable, um, but I kept showing up and eventually someone took pity on me and took me to batting cages and I learned how to hit it. And uh, one time before it was all over, I did get a home run. There were errors involved. I've been told that I'm not supposed to say that there are errors involved and just like, oh, I hit a home run. I don't care. It was a stupid volley, not the softball game, but I did get one home run. And, um, but more importantly, I learned to walk through fear. And that transformed my life. I am somebody, as it describes in our literature, ruled by a hundred forms of fear. And I, I have clever ideas. I've, I have not literally met many of you, but I have figuratively met many, many of you over these decades that I've been here. We are clever people with passions and good ideas, and we are fantastic at like having a great idea and then walking away from it because of some fear, like of, what if I look silly? What if I doesn't blah, 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 blah. The experience of doing this softball thing week after week for years taught me that I could walk through fear, that, that I could look like a fool and that my actual fear, which was that I would burst into flames from shame and there would just be a pile of ashes left uh, where I was, was a bit of an exaggeration. All that really happens in AA when I look goofy is, if I'm being candid, the guys tease me because that's what we do. And then like they punch you on the shoulder and you just walk forward. And because I did that for long enough, I was able to start a business. And here's the crazy thing. Uh, because I'm sober and I didn't screw it up one day at a time, it wound up succeeding. I just had to kind of get out of my way long enough for it to work. And um, in 2002, 2003, I was sponsoring a lot of new guys and, um, and it felt like every second or third one of them was managing in their first year. In our group, as probably in your group, we tell people not to date in their first year. Uh, but apparently, um, a lot of straight newcomers managed to get pregnant over like coffee and diners. I don't quite understand still how that happens. Um, and it would happen. And anyway, uh, we'd walk through it and, and just life would go on. And I wound up becoming a dad. Um, in 2004, my son was born. Uh, in 2005, at the end of 2005, my twins were born. I have twin girls. And uh, I am a single parent uh, by choice of three kids. And um, I'm going to tell you something that I didn't acknowledge for a very long time. Now that the kids are like 18 and over, it was really hard. Like, like raising three kids on my own was a lot of work. Um, uh, but I loved it. And, uh, and Clancy, who was my sponsor, when my, my son Isaac was first conceived, I went down to tell him. And Clancy was really old school. He was like this Norwegian Lutheran from Wisconsin. I didn't know how he would be about any of it. And honestly, I was, I was afraid that it wouldn't go well. And, um, he surprised me. If you're new, one thing I would suggest is um, give the old timers the opportunity to surprise you. Um, sometimes I have thought I know what they're going to do to the point that I don't need to bother running something by them. 
And then when I talk to the old timer, talk to the sponsor, I actually get something really different. And what Clancy said was, um, kid, being a, a parent is a really big commitment, but I've seen how you handle your AA commitments. You're very responsible. And if you can just show up one day at a time and do it, I think you'll do fine. And if you're willing to do that, I'll be here to support you. And he, um, and this old Norwegian Lutheran conservative guy was like my biggest booster for my kids. And my son's in college as a sophomore, actually at the college that I went to, my, my daughters are high school seniors. That's miserable. You don't, if you have children, try to avoid high school senior year. And, um, but they're good kids and they're good kids because I somehow or other, in spite of all of my instincts to like obsess and self-destruct, have managed to keep showing up in Alcoholics Anonymous. You, you have given me solutions when I've needed them. And candidly, um, you have given me an opportunity to allow many of my problems to sort of die from benign neglect rather than escalating them, they just sort of have gone away. And um, it's been a really good run. I'm gonna be an empty nester come the fall. I, it's wild. Like I, if any of you are parents, you may have an idea what I'm talking about. Like I've been just sort of in the middle of this for 20 years and I, I'm vaguely like somebody looking at parole. Um, you know, like I'm like, I can do what I want. And, uh, um, and I know that AA is here and I know that it's everywhere. Uh, and uh, I'm really excited for that and a little bit flipped out. Um, um, but mostly I'm really grateful. So I, uh, I wanna thank you all for having me. I wanna thank you for listening. I, um, I, uh, I do realize there are many new people here. I, I, I hope I've given you something useful, but I really wanna tell you this, um, if it's not me, that's okay. Um, go to a meeting tomorrow. And I hope, I hope if you didn't hear what you needed to hear today, you hear it tomorrow. Because what I can tell you is that one day at a time, I've been doing this for 33 years and change. And it's a wonderful, wonderful life. And I had a really sucky life. I really did. And um, I, it has been draining at times and demanding and incredibly worthwhile. And I think that I am remarkably unexceptional in Alcoholics Anonymous, which suggests to me that if you're new and you sort of do what we do one day at a time and stay sober, you will get what we get. And it's really good here. So stick around. Thank you for listening. All right.